Before we get into this uh, th- this new edition of Designated Chatter, I want to go ahead and say that this entire podcast is being des- uh, dedicated to Thomas Meek, a father figure, mentor, uh, all-around amazing personality to this world. We recently just lost, unfortunately, to COVID-19. It was a man who led with his personality, was a man who cared about everyone and everything around him. Such an infectious person, so, gave the most amazing bear hugs. Um, someone that you wanted to be around. He drove my passion for the Mets fandom. Someone for, who grew up in Staten Island and who, who drove the passion of the sports along with them. Huge reason of why I am the person I am. I am the person I am today. Sorry. And he leaves behind a beautiful wife, Carrie Meek, beautiful wife, and four amazing children and Colin, Zach, Pacey, and Stephen. And I, I, there are no words to say what this, this means and how this feels because it's, it is a heartbreaking loss. Unfortunately, we have to move on without him, but I know he is looking on every single one of us. And the message for Carrie is that we are all with her. We all love her. And there is no way any of us would be who we are without Thomas Meek. Rest in peace. Love you. Uh, designated Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition, a final edition of Season 3 of Designated Chatter alongside me, as always, Ethan Ockham. Tell the ladies and the gentlemen who we have on this podcast today. Uh, we have a former MLB player of 10 years. Um, multiple organizations, six major league ball clubs, including the Reds, Athletics, Diamondbacks, Indians, Rangers, and Padres. And what I just found out, a very inspirational man. Yes. Shortstop Adam Rosales. He is now a manager in the Oakland Athletics organization. Um, some of the things he speaks on during this interview, it's it's so inspiring to see what goes on behind the scenes of the game and all the mental aspects that have to happen for you to stay in the game. And it's, it's, I, 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 you lose words for it. It really is. It's, it's an amazing time talking to him. And I think our fans are really going to enjoy this one. Yeah. People listening are in store for a very fun and educational podcast. Like, like Ethan just said, it's someone who projects knowledge of the game and a different perspective about how he went about the game and what motivated him to drive and really grind the, the baseball scenery. So in store, coming up after this uh, this first part. Um, but as we get underway here, let me just get a quick thumbs down to uh, Javier Abayez and the New York Mets fans. I'm sorry. Yes, I know. I, uh, a former, uh, I, I, I still dabble around the game of baseball, so I'm not, I'll call myself a player. I, I you, you see both sides of the the. Pay, the play playing field there you have the fans 
who constantly booed Francisco Lindor, Javier Baez for their poor play throughout the year. Yes, you understand that you are the player that you are. You were supposed to succeed because that's the player you've shown yourself to be through the first five to 10 years of your career. And you sign for the big bucks. You want the big bucks and you're expected to play for the big bucks. So when it comes to that perspective, the fans pay, they're paying 50 to hundred bucks upwards of 500 to a thousand. You got the, the uh, season ticket holders who should be in store for a very long and should have been a successful season. And just one thing after another went wrong with the Mets injuries. You can blame it on injuries. You can blame it on anything because everything went wrong this year. So the fans didn't really help in a, in a sense, but the players booing Javier Baez going out and saying to the press that they were booing the fans back doesn't help his dynamic as a free agent going into the offseason and as a player overall. And it, it really, you need to go about it as, as, as neutral as possible. Like I told you, could have easily just gone ahead and said it's the thumbs down is just something that we do as, as, as the boys in the locker room to get ourselves motivated. So you have obviously a very different perspective than I do. So why don't you, uh, what, what do you, what do you think about the situation? So like everyone knows here on this podcast, I'm a diehard Cubs fan. Um, I cried actually when we lost Anthony Rizzo. I was upset when we lost Chris Bryant. I had a smile on my face when we got rid of Javier Baez and I will tell you why. Javier is a very all around athletic player. He's a great player. Um, he put his heart onto the game and still does. Um, but some something that happened to Javi is once the Cubs won the 2016 World Series, fame took over that man. Yes, he wanted to make the millions. He wanted to be that top-notch player being in the All-Star game. He he lost the fans' perspective and gained the dollar signs in the eyes' perspective. Um, and a couple of things that happened before he even went to the Mets, he does not go well with coaches telling him how it is. Um, I can tell you a game, I was at this game against the Cleveland Indians. Javi uh, rounded second, lost track of outs. And instead of trying to run back to first, he just decided to walk back to the clubhouse. What did David Ross do? He threw his sheet down. He went out to that ump and he he put Sandy Alcantara in for Javier Baez. And in that dugout, David Ross told Javier what he did. And Javier's expression was, mm. Mm, you don't do that to your manager. And I knew that he was just, he was getting to a point in this game to where he's just, he's, he's sucking. Oh my God, he's sucking. He averaged what, 180 while he was with the Cubs and he's mm-hmm. still not doing too hot over there. Was it 2-0? Maybe even that? I think it was like 220 maybe. Okay. And That's on the season. Just, it's just what he did really blew my mind, but I know if anyone would do it, <laughs> it would be him. Yes. It's it just for one as I've never been a player and I never will be a player, but I can tell you the fans are what make this game. You don't get paid. Front office don't get paid. Your workers working at the stadiums, even the guest attendants don't get paid if you don't have fans. So for him to go out of his way, and yes, I get it. Mets fans can be a little harsh, but they are very loyal and they stay true to their team. They want to see them succeed. And the reason and I totally get why they're booing him because this team hasn't succeeded in the way it should be after making these big moves. And to bring on someone like Javier Baez, like, again, I was happy to release him, Jacob. I know you weren't too happy to get him mm-hmm. to start it with it, but he's he's just someone he, he fits in the strike zone. He probably 
won't swing or if he's swinging for the fences, it's probably a ball in the dirt, maybe in the grass before. Yeah. I saw that. You see that one swing where he swung mm-hmm. He's swinging yeah. on a curveball when it's halfway to the plate. Yes, I saw. I think it's very crucial that you pay attention to the fans in this game and for him to go out of his way and tell the media that they were booing the fans for not having their back. Yes, I know it sucked. You were at your home stadium. You want all the loudest cheers and crowds all you can get. But when you don't perform to expectation, they have every right to boo you. Mm-hmm. Even if you were a top-notch team and you mess up, they still have the right to boo you. They will have every right to boo you because they make this game. And for him to say that, and especially wanting $200 million come mm-hmm. offseason, he's definitely not getting that. I can tell you right now, he's definitely not staying with his little buddy, Francisco Lindor, mm-hmm. after what just happened. Yes, yes, he apologized. And yes, what he did to end the game yesterday was amazing. It was an El Mago move that everyone knows. But and yes, fans were cheering, and yes, they got a mixed reaction when he stepped up to the plate and he heard a crowd of boos and then a crowd of chants when he slid to home to finish the game. But that's a part of baseball. And I don't think fans are gonna ever get over the point that their top two players um just physically went out of their way to boo the fans that make this game. It was very uh it was it was embarrassing. I would say that yes. if if I was a GM and the GM had to come down and have a clubhouse meeting with my team, especially as a manager, that embarrasses me. How does that make me look? You know, I'm having these players go out here that play every day and are supposed to be playing for the fans and put their heart out in every game just to boo the fans. And I know Javi did some uh, – he didn't – he missed track of outs when he was with the Mets, and he walked back the, the dugout too. I don't know if the manager said anything. I know David Ross said something, but that's because David Ross doesn't put up with the BS in this game. If you're going to act like a kid, you're going to get benched like a kid. Mm. Um, like, again, I love Javier Baez, but this is something you cannot do in this game. Yes, and like um, uh, Steve Cohen said, he broke the third rail and went after the fans, and that's something you can't do as a player. You cannot go after the fans. Yes, I'm a diehard Mets fan. I think the one thing that he needs to understand is that there may, there was no intention behind no bad intention behind those boots. Like I still like I told you, the one thing that drives a uh, drives a fan in general is positive performance and bad performances. Obviously, it's not something that you want to see again. Players are going going to succeed seven, uh, three out of ten times at the best. So. It, yes, it does suck to see these players who are supposed to be hitting upwards of 280, 290 plus on a regular basis suffer through what has been one of the most disappointing seasons in the past 10 years for the Mets. But at the same time, you know Javier Baez and you know the kind of situations he's been in. He won the 2016 World Series. He played in huge situations in the playoffs. You have to un- you have to believe that his mindset is much thicker and his skull is much tougher than he portrayed it to be throughout these past couple of days. And the one thing that that boggles my mind is he went out and said we were booing the fans. Yet Kevin Pillar was someone that also put the thumbs down, and said we weren't booing the fans. I have been treated with utmost respect and love as a player here. Kind of makes me think: Did the players were they actually booing the fans? Or was it because of how Javier Baez felt? Maybe it was something that they they were doing 
maybe putting the thumbs down because you saw the Yankees doing it a couple years back. But at the same time, you, you don't know what the player dynamic is because Javier Baez mm-hmm. leads with his emotions. You've seen it leads with his emotions rather than his instincts. And that will get you in trouble time and time again through this, this kid's game. And in a sense, he's kind of acting like one. And yeah. he just needs to play the game of baseball. And the Mets fans also have to take a better responsibility of how they treat their fans in a sense. Yes, the boos are in respect very necessary because they do deserve better with the payroll and the amount of hype that has gone into this season. But at the same time, you cannot feed negative performance with negative reinforcement. Positive reinforcement is the best way to get someone out of a slump. And when you're hearing a, sh- a shower of boos, especially in Francisco Lindor, who's had a ton of pressure after signing a $340 million deal, it's not easy to go out and perform when you're constantly hearing in your home ballpark booze. So the Mets fans do have to do a little bit better in my perspective, but at the same time, they do have that right because this season was supposed to be one of the best seasons since the 86 season because there was so much hype around this team and everything went wrong. Speaking of everything going wrong, I just saw a notification on, on my screen about Zach Scott, the Mets GM, was just arrested on a DUI. So I and it's just everything in the Mets organization is coming to a crumble. It is very hard to be a Mets fan right now. So as I sit here with this lovely Mr. Met hat on my head, oh, I need some head and shoulders, baby. What is going on? Oh, it's, just, it's, yeah, just that's breaking funny. news, baby. It's 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 actually funny. I got the same notification. I didn't pay no mind to it until he said something. I looked at it. That's that's insane. Breaking news at the moment, guys. How about that? But anyway, back to Javier Baez. It's yes, I see. He, he I like how you put it. He plays with his emotions, and his emotions get the best of him sometimes. And it's been seen a lot, and how they get the best of him. Um, back in Chicago, yet like you mentioned, the 2016 World Series. I will tell you right now, not one Cubs fan, even when Javi went over four swinging at everything, even the ones that hit the lights on top of the stadium, he just, he never got booed because in Wrigley and Cubs fans eyes, he was a hero. He, he was one who brought a team, a world championship after 108 years. And that's why no one booed him. So yes, he got this high head. He got, Oh, I'm this big guy. I'm this top notch guy. And then what he got traded. He's not used to another fan base. This is who he's been with for his whole life. So, yes, when he got in there and he started getting booed, this is something that Javier was never used to. And I'm not saying that, yes, Mets Mets fans can do a better job on not to boo, you know, their players. But then again, you know, yes, we didn't boo him, but there is some times where you just look like, really? Really? I mean, this guy, he's just – he's a hothead. It shows. I hate to say it, but he is a hothead. So when the emotions get the best of him – he lets it go and he let it go to the wrong person. And that was the media. Yeah. And that's how everything got to the point. It was, will Mets fans ever get over it? Some might, some will never get over it. Yeah. I can guarantee you this. Very it's emotional fan fun. base, very emotional fan base. And it goes back to Francisco Lindor being booed early on. And a lot of analysts and writers came out saying the fans have to do a better job because yes, it was, I think it was maybe 30 games into the season. There were already boos on Lindor. So this isn't the first time they've booed a should-be top player in the division league as a whole. So, yes, 
the Mets fans are known to do stuff like this, but it's not because they mean it bad intention. It's because they are so loyal. They're willing to push their players in the worst way possible. So it's, this isn't the first, there's been a lot of negatives that have come out of this year. I mean, you have the Astros and the whole Dodgers series. You have this, there's just been, Oh, the, the Shohei Otani debacle with Stephen A. Smith. I mean, can we just play some baseball, man? Can we play some baseball? Speaking of baseball, I don't mean, oh man, I'm sorry. I'm going to collect my words, collect my thoughts. Let's just get back to uh, some fun uh, interviews and uh, let's get back to uh, Mr. Adam Rosales. Everyone, I know you've been waiting for this. We told you this was supposed to be a very fun interview, very fun, knowledgeable. Listen in because this is someone that knows many, many good terminologies about the game of baseball. He is very knowledgeable if you're looking for someone to look towards, for someone that had an amazing perspective on how to thrive in the game as a whole. This is someone you need to listen to. So yes, here we go. Mr. Adam Rosales. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back. It is amazing, and we are excited to be joined and uh, it is exciting to learn from uh, a former MLB player, actually record holder in himself, uh, former MLB player of 10 years, had a tenure with multiple organizations, including the Reds, Athletics, Diamondbacks, Indians, Rangers, and Padres. It's a mouthful right there. A constant record breaker of his own, a swift and elegant speed around the bases, <laughs> setting a record for the fastest home run trot ever recorded. Mr. Adam Rosales, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast today. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Not a problem. Not a problem. We will get right down to business here. Yeah, thanks again. But before we get into what went on on the field and just the repertoire that you had as a player, I want to take a bit of a deeper dive into your mindset in the clubhouse and one thing that I've learned and we've learned, especially being my, uh, studying sports management here at Lord University, is leadership in not only the game itself, but leadership in every facet around the game. And personally, in your own mindset, how were you able to present yourself to your teammates? And how did you personally emulate yourself uh, maybe to some, uh, as to, I guess, mold yourself around some of your favorite players? And how important was it for you to maintain that authenticity of your game and your personal mindset around the game? Right. So for me, I was more of like an observer type learner. Um, got my, keep my ears open, my mouth shut, kind of, <laughs> kind, of, kind of personality, you know, because there is so much information and there's so much talent to learn from. And so many guys that have already been there. And I just had that ultimate respect for these guys. And I would just do my best to learn from them. I mean, some of my favorite players, like a Paul Goldschmidt, just how stoic he was. And when he had a message to deliver, everybody would listen. But it's like you aspire to be that kind of leader. Or like an Adrian Beltre, who just led by example. Another guy, when he spoke, you're listening. And there's guys like Johnny Gomes, who just kept it light in the clubhouse, but like paid attention to detail mm -hmm. as well. And those... Those are the kind of guys that you want to emulate your game after, the, the kind of leader you want to become. But, man, I'll tell you what, it's a lot different being on this side of the ball now because mm -hmm. now I'm a manager in the Oakland A's organization. And the leadership skills that I'm learning now 
compared to how I was as a player. Because as a player, it goes quick, right? The game is fast, and there's so much going on. Uh, and you kind of you, – you rely on your leaders to pave the way for you. And now I'm on the other side of the ball. I got to create that path for these players. And I never had to do that before. I mean, there's some guys, there's some guys uh, like that. I've had teammates do that. They have those leadership skills, but I was never that kind of leader until now, you know, so it's a little bit different. Maybe to expand in terms of leadership, I guess I always see the stereotype and maybe this is something you can obviously entail yourself towards since you obviously experienced that as a player yourself, but the young fans of the game looking to you, did, did you see yourself as a leader for them? Or did, oh, yeah. did, did you did you take upon that on your shoulders, knowing that you had to be someone you were you were being looked upon? Did you have that? Uh, and what kind of pride did you, if you felt that way? To be authentic and genuine with you right now, that is why I played baseball in the first in the first place. Nice, because I would go to Wrigley Field, being from Chicago, and see these ball players, and they inspired me mm-hmm. to play baseball. And I always remembered that I wanted to be a major league baseball player because I felt so inspired by these players that that was my job. When I got to the big leagues, I wanted to inspire every young kid. I still do because of of that, that inspiration that I had since I was a kid and the escape that that gave me at such a young age, The, the, the game was an escape for me. And I know it could be for a lot of young players, but for me, I, I would always like, you know, you go to high school, college, and you, you're concerned about, not concerned, you're aware of these scouts in the stands watching you. And you try to play every day, even if there's not a scout in the stands, you still try to play every day like there's somebody watching you, right? But so you go through that high school, college, you get the pro ball. There's still scouts. There's always scouts. But there comes a time, I guess, you reflect and you remember why you're doing this in the first place. So it kind of shifted for me about my second or third year in the big leagues where I said, why am I doing this? And I started disregarding the scouts even being there. I really didn't care. I started playing and I started having the young kids that were watching me. I started having them hold me accountable wow. for how hard I played that night and how well I did. I would look up in the stands, see a kid and say, that was me. I'm going to play with that kind of heart. And wow. I want to inspire somebody today. That's the kind of mentality that I had. That is amazing. Amazing. Yeah. A totally different perspective. It yeah. definitely is a totally different perspective. So my first question for you, Adam, um, you talked about, coaching already so you played with then again with six different teams in the MLB for over 10 years of service but you are now a manager in the athletics organization um what were some mental changes and some different aspects you had coming into this new role um and what were some of the certain steps you took to change into a ball player to a coach well there was the transition was quick I knew I had to stay in the game like I never wanted to leave it so I jumped right into it it was Boom, I was done playing in 2019, 2020, I was coaching. But obviously COVID hit and it's been a big challenge for us. But the biggest challenge mentally is the communication. 
Uh, it's, it's for me as a player, I got so good at managing this bubble that I'm in as one player, one identity, one play, you know, so it's just one thing I had to manage. Now there's 40 different players with 40 different personalities, <laughs> with 40 different needs yep. that I am managing and I need to communicate with, have the touch points with. And that is the biggest, to make sure that I'm giving them everything they need. And it doesn't stop there with the players. You have to communicate with your staff as well. The people that you work with, you have to know what their jobs are so that you can help them do their job better. And those two things, I think the communication and helping uh, um, communicating with players and communicating with your staff are the two biggest challenge mentally for me to understand how to do it. But I have such great mentors in the Oakland A's organization. You know, we have Keith Littman. He's in the Oakland A's Hall of Fame now. He was the farm director for a thousand years, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he's just a great mentor. He's always sending me uh, motivational messages and articles to read. So I'm really adhering to his mentorship and trying to pick up as much as I can as fast as I can. Yes, sir. And, and the one thing to speak on, did you notice a huge difference talking to the players as a player compared to a coach? Yeah. Like, did, like, or did you try and just keep that same perspective? From hundred percent, there's a different, a whole different commu uh, communication as a player, especially in the major leagues. It's just, um, it's almost an easy conversation because we get it. We're in the, we're at the same level. We can help each other out. But a lot of times I kind of just, I li like I said, I just listened. I didn't really do too much speaking because I didn't have to. I let other leaders do that, right? I kind of just, just rode the wave as long as I could and kept my mouth shut. <laughs> but as a manager, you can't let anything slip through the cracks. You can't let them take an inch because they'll take a mile and it's a disservice to them. You know, it's all out of love, right? If, if they take an inch, you're not helping them at all get to the next level. And that's what you got. You got to take that. You got to be, you got to hold yourself accountable as a coach to take that upon yourself that you got to speak to them. You have to know, you have to identify how they need to be spoken to and deliver the right message to them. Um, is, is, it's a whole different dynamic speaking to a player now as a manager compared to me as a player. Interesting. And um, especially now that you're staying on the managerial perspective, it's now in the thick of it. Obviously, it's been around for years and years. It's the quantification data analytics. That's something that has been apparent in the game. I mean, but has been quantified more and more over the past couple of years. Unfortunately, there has come times where I, in from perspectives outside the game, it could be different inside the game where it has kind of gotten into the manager's head and gotten them away from the basics of the game. A lot of people dove into uh, Kevin Cash uh, pulling Blake Snell out in the World Series because the analytics kind of pointed to that instead of how he felt on the situation. And do you feel that as we have made these innovations in data with the quantification of analytics, that some players and coaches can become lost in the information and get away from the basics of the game? 
Yeah, well, there's no question. You can you can definitely get caught up, just like you can get caught up in anything. And there's there's so much information. You can you can you can track all this information, but how do you use it? Um, who needs to use it? And what player needs to hear it? And what player doesn't? It's so it's so many dynamics. There's a lot of positive stuff that comes from all these numbers. Don't get me wrong. But there is the human element still, right? And I always Whenever I think about analytics, data, the factual stuff, I think about the movie Sully. You guys see that yet? It's, it's like, whatever, 10 years old, I feel like. But the airplane pilot that lands yes. in the Hudson yes. River. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they take them through all the simulations. And the all because they're in, like, court or whatever. They're trying to prove him yeah. wrong for making the decision that he made. And they have all these other pilots landing you know, the birds hit the engines, engines go out, they land perfectly. They land back at, I think, LaGuardia Airport, New York. They say, look at you were wrong, Sully, you're wrong. You should have just turned around and went back to the airport. And then Sully makes a great point at the end of the movie. He said, yes, you, you, you thought about all the data, all the analytics, but did you consider the human element mm. of making a decision? You have... 150 lives at stake Hmm. did you think about that how long does that take and they they redo all the pilots redo the simulation and it takes like they give them like 30 seconds to actually take the human element put that into it and they all crash but they don't make it back to the airport and sully makes his point because that 30 seconds is the difference and that's same with analytics you gotta you gotta make sure you keep the human element in this game you know, like, that's why I love Bob Melvin so much. The, yeah. You know, he was my uh, manager with the Oakland A's back in 2011 through 2013. And then I got to play for him again in 2017. For me personally, I feel like he always keeps the human element in it. Um, and he, he thrives on that. I think he takes pride in it, at least from my perspective, what I've seen from Bob Melvin. No, 100%. Mind blown right there. Amazing connection. Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, so we're to kick it back to your pro playing days. Um, so being a pro player and even now just still being a manager in the game, it is so difficult and just not baseball, but any sport being on the road constantly, not seeing family, not being able to see the wife and kids and whatnot. And what are some mental changes you need to stay, you know, you need to make this just feel at home, even though when you're on the road and just know that you can keep your game on top level and just have the mindset to just continue go out there and be you that's a great question because that's exactly why i quit <laughs> I, could, I couldn't take it anymore mm. being away from my wife and kids my my daughter had just started kindergarten i'm like i can't i can't keep doing this like it was it was honestly like tearing me up inside and i know a lot of guys still do it and they're they're good they're, they're all right but I wasn't okay anymore being away. There came a time where I'm like, I need to be home. Mm-hmm. Even if I, I mean, we're super busy. Like I'm at the field. We have a day off today, but I'm at the field probably from like 9.30 a.m. to 9.30 at night right now, mm-hmm. like learning a lot of stuff. But I get to take my kids to school, you know, and then I get I get to see them briefly at night. But then we have the off season too. But I get to see them every day. But while I was playing, I had to combat that. And the way I combated that 
is obviously you talk to him a lot on the phone. Thank God for FaceTime and <laughs> whatnot. But other things I would do, I, I was fortunate enough to like every city that we went to, I, it seemed like I had a friend from college or somebody I used to play with or family member. So I'd always go have lunch with them. I'd make sure, or we have like a team dinner. Like that's the thing, the clubhouse atmosphere. You'd always get the clubhouse around one o'clock anyway. So you're with, without the guys, like without that cohesive unit, you're going to fall apart. That's why you got to make sure you stick tight to those guys. But I started doing something else that was really deep in my heart is I started playing. I, I started like a little organization called Sandlot Nation where I would go play on Saturday mornings on the road. We'd set up a, a pickup game of baseball for these young, like whatever, 10, 12 year olds. And I would pitch to them and we, we'd pick teams. It would just have a, a Sandlot game. And every time I did one of those, obviously I kept my mind busy, but every time I played in a Sandlot game, I would play really well. A couple of times I hit a home run that same day, but there's something true to that. Like getting rid of yourself in that sense, like, and putting your, putting your, your time and your thoughts into other people definitely helped me feel more at home um, when, when I couldn't really be home. And with the other players in the clubhouse, you mentioned the, the clubhouse a cohesive aspect yeah. of the team. And the other players also who had families and lives, was that something you guys were all able to connect with and, and know that, I mean, obviously you guys were, it's, it was your job, but you all had families. Were you guys able to constantly talk to each other about what was going on outside the game of baseball? Yeah, well, yeah 100%. You'd have to. I mean, uh, you'd always, that's number one. You talk about your families, how they're doing what they're doing, what's, what's happening you and your families. Yeah. That gets you through. There's no question is you're all, and you just, you're all in it together. The wives are back at home. Sometimes they go out to dinners and they get together and whatnot. And depending on what team you're on um, and they're in it together, you know, they know that this is not easy, but it's such a small window. That's what you got to keep reminding yourself that this opportunity is a huge opportunity. And you're such a small window to capitalize on it and you have to have a very understanding wife <laughs> first of all and thank god that i do and she was super supportive the she didn't want me to stop playing she mm. she, she, she wanted me to keep playing because she knows i love it and um but it, it just came a time but that's that's how you do it you gotta you gotta stick together yeah, the, the cohesive unit in the clubhouse and the wives stick together as well well good thing is you found another way to outreach your no. player perspective as a coach and manager now and going back uh staying uh, as a player as mentioned before you were very elegant on the base pass you <laughs> set multiple records on the field with the uh the home run trot being the fastest home run trot ever i think it was 15 point six, or was it 15 point 14.6 i believe i don't even know i really don't <laughs> Um, and honestly, as from the outside looking in, it, it speaks to the pace of play and mindset on the field. It really shows the heart and hustle that you kind of maybe it's not something you may have seen. But I think uh, from the fans and players perspective, it kind of entails you towards a player that's willing to just go with all a hustle, even when it's not really needed at the moment. And maybe is it, if it doesn't really mean much to you, is there any way you could speak on this record and really what it meant not only to kind of how it felt mentally, but also 
when you're in the game and the small things come around, what was your mental perspective around just playing everything the right way? Oh, I appreciate that. Um, it, I just look back on it and it's just something I did ever since high school, ever since I've been 14 years old, but I look back on it and it defines for me personally that I knew I did everything I could every single day. And it def- that just kind of like resonates with me that I did. That's, that's the kind of person I was. It showed, it showed on the base path when I had a home run, but it was behind the scenes, mm-hmm. you know, behind the scenes, how hard I worked every single day. When I was at the stadium, how I had my foot on the gas pedal, mm-hmm. Every single day. But then, you know, you go home, you got to decompress, of course. But when I was there, I gave those organizations every bit of my heart and energy. And, and it just the, the sprint around the bases just kind of uh, defines that, validates that, I guess. It just says, yeah, that's what exactly what that was for. Um, but that's that's really all that really means to me, which is a lot to me. But obviously to the, the fans' perspective, it's a whole different – of course. Uh, perspective, of course. Really. Of course. Definitely yeah. is. So um, my last question for you here, um, it's more of a personal question. So throughout everyone's professional career, they go through setbacks. Um, what is one setback that stands out to you in your professional career that you used to better yourself and make you the man that you are today? The biggest one was in 2010. Well, let's go back to 2009. Um, there's so many setbacks. That's, a, that's the greatest thing about this. Hmm. Um, I talked to a player, a young player. We do like the, um, the online coaching with some players now, and he was struggling bad. And um, and I said, you know what, crew? I said, congratulations. You just made me miss baseball <laughs> for the first time in a year because of the struggle, because of the setbacks, and knowing that right around the corner, if you persist, great things are going to happen, right? And I re- that's what I missed the most is, is having those setbacks. But going back to what I was going to say, 2009, I go through my first big league season. I go to Mexico to play winter ball the whole season. Like, that's a lot of baseball. And then right from winter ball, we go to the championship, whatever, like the playoffs in Mexico. It's middle of January, and I always – promised myself that I would show up at spring training February 1st, the first week of February. It's halfway through January. I haven't had a break since 2008, basically. Mm. I'm like, I'm going to spring training. I just got picked up by the Oakland A's from the Reds. They traded me. And I get to spring training with the Oakland A's and have the best season, 2010 season of my career. That was it. That put me on the map. You know, I'm grateful every day for the the opportunity that Billy Bean and the Oakland A's gave me to to play for the A's and to to taste that success, to develop in the big leagues, you know. But then in August of 2010, I had a stress fracture in my foot. And and, and we didn't know how to deal with it. It was such a small – it didn't even show up on an X-ray. It was like a bone density test whatever. I couldn't walk, you know, I couldn't go on my toes and I am hot. I'm playing well, playing defense. Well, everything's swinging it well. 
and I had to shut, they shut me down. Right. And I have to eventually get surgery on it. I had to, I had to put two screws in my navicular bone and the navicular bone is not the bone you want to break or have any kind of fracture on it because there's no blood flow to it. Right. There's no nourishment to that bone. So it takes forever to heal, but finally we do surgery on it. But from the day I left the field in August of 2010, it took me 10 months to heal such a small, minor little crack in my bone. It took me 10 months to heal it. And the patience that I had to endure and the mentality that I had to sustain to come back and play in the major leagues was extremely difficult. It was a huge setback. It, probably, it really damaged my career, but I wouldn't let it. I couldn't let it. Um, and I, bounced, I had a terrible 2011. 2012, uh, I come back strong. I was back and forth between AAA and the big leagues. And then I always refer back to 2012 being the greatest year uh, that I got to experience because, you know, that 162nd game we took from the Texas Rangers to win the AL West that year and to be a part of that team, you know, uh, it was unbelievable to come from that setback that I had to such an amazing, defining year in my career was just a testament to persevering through setbacks. Um, so that's my long answer for, <laughs> for setbacks. But, oh, the, the longer the answer, the the better the perspective about it. And yeah. I, I, I just don't think there's always that one moment that defines someone's career. And it's always, that's why we call it kind of try and find that out from every single one of our guests, because there's always that one thing that pushes them. So that that's one the thing. thing that pushes them. It's a thing you can crumble, man. I think a lot of, I think a lot of people would crumble. Yeah. You know, I'm not as good as I was before. I lost a step and there's a lot of bad stuff going through your mind. I would say whoever's listening, you got to keep going. You have to keep as, as much as it hurts and much as you feel defeated, you have to persist. I mean, if you don't, you're going to look at yourself in the mirror with regret. You never want to do that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And one last question for me. You talked about the chance to play for or under Billy Bean and a complete trailblazer of the game of baseball. Obviously, Moneyball. He was the guy who put that on the map. Uh, the first openly gay GM. This, this guy was... Uh... That's a different Billy Bean. Oh, different Billy Bean? Yeah, there's the player Billy Bean. Oh, we're talking – okay, okay. And then the Billy Bean for the the general manager Billy Bean with the Oakland A's. Billy Bean was the player. I think he played for San Diego. Okay. That's the one you just mentioned. But the other one is Billy Bean, the trailblazer, the GM. Yes. Yeah. You did did get the chance to play under him, right? Yes, Billy Bean, the GM for the Oakland A's. Did you ever get to meet him in in person? Yeah. How is is he as a person? Huge – I'm a huge fan of him. Had great conversations with him. A lot of respect, you know, shows that he cares um, about your family. Uh, you just, you, that's the kind of person you strive, at least I do, mm-hmm. strive to be like, you know, to make your life um, trailblazer like that, you mm-hmm. know. Um I mean, I could tell different stories, and, yeah. but and my experience, but just nothing but respect and a, a privilege to play 
under him, I guess, you know, as, as an Oakland A in the, in the organization. And were, were you were you able to really, like, pick his brain about the game of baseball? I mean, just obviously, I mean, there are books that kind of go into his mindset on the game, Moneyball obviously being that one, just kind of taking a totally different perspective on the game. What was one thing you noticed about his perspective? Uh. Yeah, I didn't really like pick his brain about baseball stuff. Whenever I had an opportunity to speak with him, he always was asking about my family or he talked about playing guitar. Like, I think he was teaching himself how to play guitar. I play guitar. You could see him. Yes. Yeah. I was yeah. We going to ask. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we, I remember having conversations like that, more like light or like he, you know, the first conversation I had with him on the phone, I'm on the, he calls me, you know, you got traded from the Reds to the A's. He's like, Adam, I want to, want to let you know that we've been trying to get you for a long time. And we expect, you know, don't ever sell yourself short, you know, like stuff like that, like to encourage me. You know, he, he sent me down to AAA one time. He's like, you know, you're a major league baseball player. Like you belong here and stuff like that, man. Like you don't have to say that, mm-hmm. like, but just the respect. And he, cause he's been there before he gets it. Mm-hmm. That's that human element. Right. Yeah. And um, I could go on for days mm-hmm. talking about the respect I have for Billy Bean. A true leader in the sport. True, 100%. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, Agreed. And as um, that'll, that'll do it for our questions, but we actually oh. have a very surprising segment for you, Mr. Rosales. Our <laughs> very amazing, fun segment. We like to end the show with this. Ethan, you want to tell him what time it is? Yes, it's everyone's favorite part of the podcast. It is time for The Pickle. Pickle! It is time for The Pickle, Mr. Rosales. We have 10 rapid-fire questions for you. There is no pressure at all. No pressure at all. You take as much time as you need, but obviously... There are people listening. They they will. You know, you know. I've been in, I've been in many pickles in my baseball career, and I never once got out of one pickle. <laughs> oh, I think I think I think you'll do just fine with this one. I think you'll do just fine. So whenever you're ready, we'll get right down to it. All right, I'm ready. You're all ready. All right, number one for you. What was the favorite stadium you played at as a player? Fenway. I mean, I know you got the. I know Ethan's got the Cubs jersey on. <laughs> I'm biased towards Wrigley Field, but man, every time I went to Fenway, I could have been over 24 and somehow turn around my my year just from going to Fenway. Just the the tradition there, the the environment is is the atmosphere is unbelievable. Love did you did you have the chance to sign the inside of the monster? I did, yeah. What was that like? It's the coolest thing, and I got to go up into the scoreboard at Wrigley yeah. Field, all that stuff. It just get that's the coolest thing about or one of the coolest things about being a major league baseball player is you get to tour the stadiums and they're all unique, but mm-hmm. Fenway, I always say it cause I'm biased towards Wrigley, but um, Fenway for sure. All right. All right. Second question. Favorite restaurant you ate at as a player. This may just be uh, you're at home or on the road. What was that place that you and the group of guys went out to after the game? Well, you always go to like the, you know, the steakhouses, the Mortons and all that stuff. Mm. Or you know, but um uh, and the, the best one is probably Mastro City Hall in Scottsdale here. I mean I mean it's fine dining. You know, but I'm I'm definitely one I'll I'll go I'm I was more of like a breakfast kind of guy. I'd always go okay 
find a local cafe and get some uh, some breakfast food. food, It's different. I don't think anyone understands how different breakfast (laughs) food. I mean, I could have it three times a day and not and just be completely satisfied. (laughs) That's right. I I definitely. I would wake up. I'd wake up on purpose to get the the nine (laughs) o'clock breakfast, and then I would go back to sleep for about two hours just to eat breakfast. Yes, sir. All right, number three. What was your favorite baseball movie flick? Oh man, that's tough, man. Mm-hmm. I told we're coming with the hard I mean, right here. I mean, when I was a, obviously the Sandlot, when I was a kid, that kind of put it on the map for me. We, I have so many close friends and um, buddies from Park Ridge, Illinois. Mm-hmm. You know where I grew up, and we we have our own little group like the Sandlot. We'd always go play pickup games about eight of us we played four on four games and the movie came out right when we were doing that mm-hmm. did the pickup game of baseball and it was wow. like exactly us <laughs> and it just it just heightened my love for the game of baseball but there's so many great ones I mean, there's classics yeah. but those, no, those we actually ones. just came back for our first ever trip to uh, cleveland the indian stadium and i know uh, major league kind of uh, that was i think that was an underrated one you know what, though, I'm, 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 but I, to be honest with you, that major, I think it might be major league two. I'm not sure which one you're referring to, but I think that was filmed in Baltimore. You might yeah. Wanna, so if you, wanna, you might want to double check that. I think I, I might have to now. Oh man, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't mean like. No, you're fine. You're fine. I just like, yeah. I'll, so we'll fact check that one. Fact check. Yeah, but to see, the, it was amazing this year. Was the the Yankees and the White Sox playing in the Field of Dreams? Yes. Oh, oh yes. That was really cool to see, man. That was really just out in the open. Oh yeah. Have you ever been out there? I've never been out there. Never. I want to go out there for sure. We've been to Cooperstown. My wife and I went to Cooperstown. Oh. A couple years ago. No, no place beats Cooperstown. I'm not even sure Dyer's so will be Cooperstown. <laughs> Definitely, we're trying to we're trying to get out there next year for the Cubs Reds game that they're going to play. Yeah, that's cool. Right. Yes, definitely looking forward to that. All right, number four. Who do you, in your opinion, think is the greatest of all time MLB player? Oh, man. <laughs> Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth. <laughs> Babe Ruth. I don't know, man. That's like the, oh, man, all-time best baseball player. I mean, Otani is pretty uh, mm. showing uh, some pretty good stuff. I mean, Mike, I mean, I can't just name one. I can't name one. As a baseball player, there's – yeah. There's so much that goes into it, but obviously Mike Trout's on top of his game. But oh gosh, I'm not. I don't know if I really answered that. But. No, no, you're fine. You, <laughs> gave, you gave a couple. I always find it funny whenever whenever someone names Babe Ruth because I see memes all over the place saying it's crazy how Babe Ruth was the most athletical specimen of his time, and you see him he's eating brats and he's he's going uh, to Chowtown, and it it's funny because. I think I had a conversation with a scout who had said that, in all honesty, the game of baseball isn't as as athletic as many seem to be. And I guess Babe Ruth kind of showed that in a sense because he had the mechanics around the game. I gotta, I gotta know who said that. I gotta know who said that about baseball not being athletic. He he said it's. I think he said it's inathletic, but he didn't really say it in a full sense. It was. I, don't know uh, I like this guy, John Jones, with the uh, <laughs> with the Reds. Man, last name Jones. Oh, he's a, a professional scout with the Reds. I think he was at the Mudhead State. Unathletic. Yeah, yeah. I was. I it completely blew my my brain. I'm like, how can you say that? 
I'm like, okay. Believe me, me and Jacob had a long conversation after he told me that, and I was very, <laughs> very confused. Yeah. I'm like, you not just tell me that. Yeah. Unathletic. I mean, there's, oh, some, yeah. there's some unathletic, even guy. I mean, you think about Bartolo Colon. He doesn't look athletic, but he's athletic. Yes. Like he, he, gets, he, gets, he can move. Exactly. Anyway, oh, yes. Well, well, that's a whole different podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> all right. Number five. If you thought the last one was hard, greatest of all time franchise. This could be, I mean, you could pick a, a year that stands out to you or just a. a, a, a I mean, greatest a, of all time franchise is the Yankees. Okay. I mean, that's why we all hate them, I think. You know? okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. But nobody likes it because they've always been the. Look at all the different dynasties they've had. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, but it's an easy answer, just like Babe Ruth. You know, I've never seen Babe Ruth play, but mm-hmm. but I mean, I remember watching the Yankees. You know, when Jeter was there, the late '90s was just. I mean, it's like the Bulls dynasty. And I'm from yes. Chicago, you know. Like, it's tough to beat that, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, 100. So I gotta go with the Yankees. Okay. That's where I'm going. All right, number six. What is the favorite team you played for? Ah, uh, I, I can't answer that here. Okay, that's fine. No, I'm, just playing. I'm, playing. I'm playing. I'm playing. I can tell you, and there's so many. Like I think of the A's, like the all the great memories I had because I was with them the longest. You know, mm-hmm. uh, playing in Dallas, Braden's perfect game. Oh yes, like in 2010. Like that's my favorite memory of baseball. Mm. Ever since I've been a little kid, playing the perfect game. Um, I, you know, 2012, we already brought up, you know, winning the AL West in the last game. Those two things stand out to me, but all the other organizations, I mean, I think about the Diamondbacks coming here and they're in first play. I got traded from the A's to the Diamondbacks and just the, the um, playing with guys like Goldschmidt, A.J. Pollock, Archie Bradley, and a lot of other guys that I'm not mentioning, but it was just unbelievable, man. Mm-hmm. Like to, to be on a team like that. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to play on teams that won a lot, you know, with the Rangers, they won a lot, the A's. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and they're all unique. You know? And I always grateful for the opportunity I've always had in every organization. Yes, sir. Of course. Of course. And then number seven, now that you've kind of had a chance to sit back, maybe as a kid, maybe more of a fan as the game. What is one ballpark snack that you co- totally love? <laughs> oh man, I, I'm <laughs> hot. I mean, you gotta have a hot dog, you know. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Come on, you, 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 you never had. Did you ever had the chance to try the crickets out in Seattle? No, I had, the Dodger, I had the Dodger dog in LA. Okay, okay. but. <laughs> uh, I've never had the crickets though, but that, you gotta go old-fashioned old hot dog. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right, number eight. Um, who was your favorite player growing up? Sean Dunstan, shortstop for the Chicago Cubs. You know, everybody liked to emulate Ryan Sandberg, Andre Dawson, Mark Grace, but I was always set on Sean Dunstan. Uh, just the way he played the game, like the energy, I loved it. He was shortstop. I wanted to be a shortstop. And it turns out that that was like the best guy that I would – it was the best choice that I made mm-hmm. to emulate my game after him because I've heard others – you know, others, it just turns out that he seems like the guy that I would want to be like because I got to meet him. Oh, okay. And uh, I said, hey, you were, you were my favorite ball player growing up. And he, gave, he goes, 
give me a hug, man. <laughs> he's just a great human being. Like he's always out there with the Giants. I'm not sure if he's still with the Giants, but when we played the Giants, he'd be out there taking ground balls with his players. And I'm like, that's the coolest thing, man. I, I just think it's he's just a kid. He's got a lot of energy, and it's similar to my philosophy, my approach to life in general. You know? Of course. Number nine. I can agree with that. Of course. Yes, sir. Number nine, in terms of philosophy, what was the best piece of advice you received as a player? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll go with the first one that comes up. Obviously, my dad gave me a ton of great advice. Mm-hmm. You know, but I'm going to go with Jimmy Hickman's advice. Jimmy Hickman was a former Cubby, too. He's an old-timer. Uh, the late Jimmy Hickman. But um, he, uh, I was in rookie ball, and he was the hitting coordinator or, or the hitting coach in Billings, Montana. And I was struggling or just trying to make a mark in Billings, Montana. And I was getting all this different information from all these different coaches. And he pointed to my head. He, like, tapped on my head. He goes, you know what that is? And I gave him a rookie ball answer. I said, that's my head. Oh, Jim. (laughs) He said, no, that's your filter. You're going to have to filter out a lot of stuff in order to get to where you want to be. And I took that and I ran with it. He's basically telling me you got to be your own best coach. You have to trust yourself. And that's Jimmy Hickman. You know, I, I love that man. Yeah, I agree. Um, last one, number 10. All of our season three guests have been asked this questions. And we've got some a lot of the same answers, but we've also got some answers we didn't think we would get. It's a very simple question, but some may think it's complicated. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Yes, it is a sandwich. Okay, okay, okay. Of course, a hot dog's a sandwich. Let's go. Okay. What's what's the what's the philosophy behind that one for you? (laughs) Uh, I don't have a philosophy. I just (laughs) it's 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 a piece of meat that's in between. I know it's not in between. It's it's still one bun, but it's still Mm -hmm. in between. It's a piece of meat in between two pieces of. One piece of bread, whatever, but it's still <laughs> there's still two sides of it. Yeah. Um, okay. 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 Of, we'll, take we'll take it. We'll take it. I don't like that question at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. All right, Mr. Rosales. This has come to the end of a very fun and very I mean, we're a very knowledgeable podcast. We we've gained a lot of knowledge and we hope that you had as much fun as we had and maybe further down the road we can have you on and maybe talk further about the game of baseball and we just uh, we appreciate everything you've done for us especially this uh for sure thanks for having me on guys yes thank you designated chance our designated chatter fans out there uh make sure to listen to all of our podcasts on spotify apple Podcasts, breaker google Podcasts, overcast pocket cast and radio public also, make sure to follow us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can find that all under Designated Chatter. Another great guest today, Adam Rosales. Thank you again. And until next time, stay safe. And season four is coming up, so we will see you back on the show. <laughs>